0: Well, good morning. I want to wish you a welcome. Shh. Not sure why that works, but that always works. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. Um, we have uh, sung songs that exalt the name of Christ and uh, recognize that God is our only comfort in this life. We have also... Um, lifted up prayers that remind us of our shortcomings and His grace for us. And so in that spirit, we want to approach uh, God's Word. And um, this morning, we continue in our study of the book of Job. And as I've said, um, when we think of the story of Job, all of us probably know the first two chapters and the last chapter. And yet there are so many chapters in between that develop an argument and different shades of kind of a similar argument from different friends. And it goes something like this. Job, you need to understand the truth, and you need to get back to doing what is right. And depending on who is speaking, what they mean by that is either, I think you might be in sin, or that would be Eliphaz, who we'll look at today, or Bildad, I am certain you are in sin, Or Zophar, sinners go to hell. I mean, it literally goes in that kind of progression. And what we will see as we unpack this over several months is that there is a cycle of speeches that will take place. It is always Eliphaz first, then it is Bildad, then it's Zophar. That would be cycle one. Then it is Eliphaz again, Bildad and then Zophar, that is cycle two. And in a third cycle, Eliphaz, Bildad, and I don't know what happened to Zophar. Maybe he just gave up on that sinner and just walked away. But he doesn't even, he doesn't have a third cycle. And as we walk through these cycles, I want you to, to understand that there is a progression, a progression of development of what is an insinuation of potential sin to actually saying that you're probably in sin, to to an accusation that says, Job, this is all happening because you're a sinner. You deserve this. You need to repent. So as the arguments and the cycles continue, it gets progressively more intense and more of an argument. It similarly gets shorter as we'll look at their arguments, right? As we look at the opening statements of this first cycle, um, each of the speakers will take quite a bit of space, of volume, and uh, Eliphaz will speak today in Job's chapter, Job chapter four and five, two chapters of him unpacking what he wants to say. And so it gets increasingly shorter, and that's come, if you if you kind of condense it down, it, it it's exactly like our arguments. If you and I are having an argument. Maybe about who deserves to win the NCAA championship or what team is the best team in L.A. or whatever, right? If we're having some kind of argument, it probably begins with, no, 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 I like, I like these guys and you like those guys. And they're, you know, yeah, those guys are pretty good. But, you know, our guys are probably better, right? And then an explanation is a little bit more long-winded. There's more stuff to be said, etc. And then the second round of that might sound like, okay, I don't think you're getting it, man. Like these are the reasons why my team is better. Right? And it gets a little bit more terse, a little shorter. And by the end of it, we might simply say, your team stinks, my team is good. And that's about the end of it, right? That's how arguments progress. And this is what we will see kind of unfold. I mean, that's the broad kind of uh, um, sky view over what is about to take place. And what we look at this morning is really what counsel is almost good but doesn't quite meet the need. What I want us to understand from the argument or the, the counsel of Eliphaz, I think it, it's best to think of Eliphaz's uh, um, his, his two chapters of, uh, of vocalizing, of, of verbalizing his thoughts as something of a message um, or something of a sermon. He He's trying to tell us, or he's trying to tell Job, what is wrong? And, and quite often, as I've said that we will see in Eliphaz, Bildad, and in Zophar, there are, there are definitely, predominantly elements of truth. It's just a misapplication. It's not the truth that Job needs. It's not necessarily them, them feeding into um, Job's dire circumstance or caring for him or demonstrating love and compassion for him it's a lot of truth with very little grace it's just this is what it is it's time for you to move on and if you can imagine part of what we'll see unpack here is is kind of a counsel that sounds something like this like Job, this is so sad everything that's happened for you i feel so bad for you so why don't you get things right with god and start having more kids Can you imagine if that was verbalized to you? If you had lost a child and someone goes, hey, you're young enough, you can have more children. True, yes, that checks that box. Gracious and helpful, absolutely not. Knowledge, misapplied, even if it's truthful, can be a very dangerous thing. Proverbs 26, verse 7 says this. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. That is wisdom for us to consider because I think if we're all honest, every one of us have have had opportunities to have more knowledge than insight, more information and truth than compassion. And we've probably said things they were not helpful to the moment or to the individual in need or in or in uh, um, in dire circumstance or in the midst of suffering, and we have become poor counselors well. This is Eliphaz, and I'll be honest, Eliphaz is the oldest, and we think that because he's the first, constantly he's the first to speak. The others seem to be glad to give him, you right, the right of, uh, of first speech because he's probably the most distinguished among them in age and reputation, and so he always speaks first. And he, of all the three, as I said, speaks the most graciously, but nevertheless, underneath what he has to say is a lot of truth and so little grace. Is a lot of truth and theological accuracy that is not quite the right word for the moment, for this moment in Job's tragic life. So we look at Eliphaz, his first message today, and just kind of give you an overview. Um, I made the outline because um, the way that I initially did it, it's too long to fit in our little screen, right? But um, think of it this way. I just put in what Eliphaz is trying to say, and in chapter 4, 1 through 11— He's trying to tell Job, be consistent with the theology that you already have. And then secondly, in verses 12 through 5-7, he's trying to say, be realistic, right? Understand what is actually taking place. And then third, he is saying, be humble, receive, right? Uh, with humility, don't, don't, don't outthink yourself because God catches the clever. And then finally, he says, be submissive. The discipline of the Lord you need to embrace, And then you can have all those good things that you want from the Lord's hand um, renewed into your life. And even as I say that, you could see the kind of the the lack of help that such statements can be. But let's take a look at this together. I'm not going to read the passage, it's it's two chapters long. Let me pray and we will unpack it as we go. Heavenly Father, we come before you having sung songs of praise about our Savior Jesus Christ who has died for us and risen again that our sins might be forgiven and father that is a deep truth that we don't always live out um, in a way that we could and knowing that we are in your hands and none can snatch us from you knowing that our sins are forgiven because we have repented confessed and and placed our trust wholly in the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing these things, Lord, should cause us to walk in grace with others. Would you help our counsel, our ministry, our thoughtfulness towards others to be like that of Jesus Christ? We find ourselves constantly, Lord, struggling, Lord, uh, trying to balance that that teeter-totter between being absolutely truthful and accurate at the expense of compassion or being compassionate and gracious and kind at the sacrifice of theological precision. Help us to be like Christ in whom was grace and truth so that we might walk in a way that honors his name, his reputation, and his gospel message. And so as we look, Lord, uh, to the message of Eliphaz this morning, We pray that we would say amen to those theological truths that are pertinent and that we would remind ourselves that even in the application of truth, we must be mindful that we are ministering to the right individuals in the right circumstance for their particular need. We praise you for your goodness, your truth, and grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's get in. Be consistent, I think, would be um, the, the first uh, statement, the summary statement of verses 1 through 11. As, and as you see at the top is the part that I would have put in if we had more space in our outline, and that's impatience and rigidity. That's my, um, my, that's my description of what is taking place in Eliphaz's message at this particular junction. So we'll begin by talking about his impatience and rigidity as he's demanding of Job to be more consistent with the theology, the worldview that they commonly share. It starts in verses 1 through 6 with an impatience towards impatience. He's impatient with impatience, and you'll see what I mean. Verses starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, you have strengthened the weak hands, your words have upheld him who is, who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and in the integrity of your ways your hope? Now listen, I want to paint an accurate picture of this, and this is my guess. My guess is that he is trying to speak kindly, but he is already implying that Job has an issue with patience. And he himself is demonstrating that he has an issue of impatience, right? Because he is thinking, Job, I got to tell you, you're a very impatient man. It's kind of like me and, me and my brother, you know, we never fought when we grew up. Yes, you're laughing, and that's appropriate because that's not true. We fight even today, right? And sometimes we get into arguments, and one of the things that, that one or the other of us would say is like, hey man, you mad? It's like, dude, I'm mad because you made me mad, right? You're mad at the guy being mad. Your madness made me mad, right? Have you ever done that? See, irrational, but it seems to explain exactly where we're coming from, and this is Eliphaz. He is impatient. He is upset. He feels like this isn't okay. Now listen, Some commentators think that, especially that opening line in verse 2, suggests that he is kind of venturing delicately. And he might be. He might be saying, listen, if I venture a word with you, will you become impatient? But what I think works against that, and what suggests that it's not just him trying to be as compassionate and gentle and sympathetic as possible, is the very next line, the second line of verse 2, which is, yet who can keep from speaking? I have to speak up, right? I, if I say something, you're going to get mad. That those are the lines that um, that I always do not appreciate when a friend or family member says, "Like, listen, I have to tell you something," but don't get mad, because right, because like you're you're thinking whatever it is. There's probably cause for me to be mad or else you wouldn't have to you wouldn't have to preemptively strike that way. Right. So so you're already ready for something. This is what he's doing. If I venture a word with don't get mad, don't get mad. And if it's if it's a kind way of him kind of approaching kind of tiptoeing into this subject, I don't think so. Because the next line is I couldn't help it. I got to speak because implied you're acting like a fool. You're speaking nonsense. Remember the last section we looked at in chapter 3 was Job just spilling out the darkness of his soul, wishing God had never created him, wishing he had never had a day that he lived, right? Saying that the regrets are crashing in around him, and maybe that's what has triggered Eliphaz to finally speak, and he says, listen, I, I need to say a word to you, and you might get mad, but I can't help it. I've got to say what I've got to say. And he does build him up a little bit. He says in verse 3 and 4, you've instructed many. You've strengthened the weak hands. That's a good statement. He is saying, you have often spoken counsel that has been helpful to those that are weak. Verse 4, your words have upheld him with stumbling and you've made, made firm the feeble knees. You've kept guys upright. You have ministered to people with your own words. So now, verse 5, it's come to you. Now you're the one that is injured and broken. Are you going to get impatient? Are you going to get mad? It touches you and you're falling apart. What I find curious is, so so in this be consistent portion, he is saying that I am impatient with you, Job, because you are struggling with impatience. And it's an interesting accusation because later on in the book of James, James chapter 5, verse 11, this is what it says about Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James, James five eleven, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, implies that Job is a model of patience, steadfastness, endurance. And here is Eliphaz saying, dude, you got, you got an issue with impatience, bro. You know, you got an anger problem. You got an anger problem, right? That's kind of how it comes across, right? I'm impatient with you because you are, you are struggling with your impatience. Let me say one more thing, right, that I like about this, this portion when he's, he's suggesting that Job is struggling with impatience. He mentions, isn't it not your fear of God your confidence, Right? This is verse 6. And the integrity of your ways, your hope. I find this interesting because if you think about it, up to this point, and we're only in chapter 4 of, of the book of Job, but when it comes to the character of Job, the author of Job has already said that Job is the kind of man that fears God. There's fear and turns away from evil. There's integrity. So this is Eliphaz saying, hey, listen, isn't the fear of God and integrity your way out? Well, this is something that the author of Hebrews has said in chapter 1, verse 1. It's something that the Lord says in the counsel of the the angels, including Satan himself. He says, have you considered Job? He is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. He says that in chapter 1, verse 8. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 3. And then here, here's Eliphaz the oldest and the most distinguished amongst his three friends. And when he speaks, he says, hey, isn't your fear of God, your confidence, integrity of your ways, your hope, he implies the same thing that has been spoken by the author, by the Lord himself in heaven, like this is who Job is. He fears the Lord and he walks in integrity. So here's Eliphaz saying, are you getting impatient? Are you walking away from what you are? You need to become more consistent you need to get back to who you are you need to shake this off and get moving it's an interesting interesting statement his implication I think is what he's implying is you are a good person so go back to walking with the Lord and everything's gonna be okay right every little thing is gonna be all right we have so many songs like that, I realized as I was kind of uh, studying through this, songs just kept coming into my mind. You know, be happy, what is it? Don't worry, be happy, do, 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 right? Like, that's, that's a pleasant song. I don't mind it in the background, but that is not good theology, right? In fact, it's not just good wisdom for anybody. Like, you know, my rent is late, right? That's part of the lines, right? And they're going to they're gonna close my gate. Don't worry, be happy. It's like, Dude! Like, no, like, take care of your business, right? And then worry less and to be happy, right? Like, I don't understand, but that's kind of something of the counsel, the shallowness of some of the counsel that we could give to each other. Hey, get back to your consistency, and by consistency, whoop, whoop, by consistency, he means back to our very rigidly narrow understanding of truth. And this is what I mean by that. Look at uh, verse 7 through 11. He says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow inequity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now, there's a lot of, you know fanciful stuff that is in there but what I think he's trying to get across is that he and Job share a similar theological worldview and in that worldview in that theological framework he has a very rigidly narrow understanding of truth he is saying listen Job just think about it remember it another translation might say something like have you ever considered this right He's saying, give me testimony about this, Job. Have you ever known anyone that was innocent that died, that perished? Was there ever an occasion where the upright has been cut off? And so for the first time in many of these arguments, we start to realize that at the base foundation of their understanding of who God is and how he's made this universe, there is a closed system of moral give and take. They believe that there are certain moral certainties that God has baked into this universe and that these rules dictate what happens. If you are good, God makes everything good. And if you are bad, God will make everything bad. These rules, according to one, um, one writer says, these rules dictate that good comes to those who are righteous and bad comes to those who are wicked. Working backwards from effect to cause, it means that if people suffer, it is because they have sinned. And if they are blessed, it is because they have trusted and obeyed. You see, if your system is closed and you've got to be good so that God will be good, Don't be bad or else God might send bad. If that's the closed system that you have, it's that binary, then what begins to result from that is, okay, let's back up. Why is this happening to you? Why are these difficulties coming out of your life? Hmm, there must be sin. Because in my closed system, this equals this. This equals this. I, can't, I don't have an explanation for Job or for anyone that is suffering that is genuinely and certainly and thoroughly righteous. And let me say this. Job never throughout this entire thing, right through the entirety of Job, even when he declares his innocence, he never proclaims himself sinless. He just declares himself innocent. And you guys understand in the context of Job what he means by that. What he means by that is that he is a human being. And he will affirm in his, in his kind of rebuttals that, that, yeah, I'm a sinner. We're all born in dust. We're all made of the same stuff. We all have sin and the potential of sin. I'm just saying I've done nothing that required God to send this, this amount, this, this, this torrent of pain into my life. This is not the result of something I have done against him. That all of these friends and Job recognize there is consequence for sin. Job is trying to say, this is not a direct consequence of any sin that I've committed that I know. And because their system is closed, the friends are pretty rigidly narrow. And over time, in the course of the argument, it will become more and more condensed, more and more intensified. And more and more accusatory and they will say no it's because there's a sin you're not telling us about god doesn't do this to good people see that's his that's a statement in verse seven think about it job was there ever an innocent person that perished because they're innocent right was there ever an upright person who was cut off when they're actually upright God always fixes things. It doesn't mean that things can go bad for a moment, but God always makes things good. And let me ask you, is that not part of the way that we sometimes simplify, overly simplify, God's sovereignty in our lives? Oh, there's a real hard time right now, but God is the Lord of this universe, so everything's going to be hunky-dory one day. I will be healthy again one day, right? I will get married one day. We will have kids one day. We, We will do... Are we certain that that's exactly how God works in this universe? In this world under the sun? Because other portions of Scripture suggest that that's not how it works. That there are times when things, the difficulties, pains, and struggles will come into our lives that are not a direct consequence of our sin. Which means there are sometimes things that come into your life is not perfectly explainable a good person who walks with the Lord he will have good things in in, in Eliphaz's all right, moral morally ordered universe and that's going to lead him to suspect to infer that Job you must have some sin all right on Job's part Let me let me make sure that you understand this. At least initially, I think Job is in that same theological space, that same closed system of cause and effect, and that's why he is pouring out saying, "Why is this happening to me?" Right? I'm innocent. It makes sense, right? Like, like he doesn't go, oh, you know, these things happen and the Lord, he, he recognizes in humility the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He does that, but he is still wondering, but why would this happen to me? I think I have walked in my integrity in the fear of the Lord. I think I have lived in such a way that I should honor him. How did this take place? Because he's working from the same closed system. The same binary system that right is right and good things will happen. The wrong is wrong and bad things should happen. But we find evidence constantly that that's not always the case. It's the way that most people, in fact, it's the way that most seriously moral or religious persons think. I'll give you an example in Acts 28. Do you remember Paul's shipwreck there on Malta? right. And then as he's kind of getting wood for the fire, um, a viper, a poisonous, it's, it's a term for a poisonous snake. Like I don't, I don't think it's a cobra, but I like to think it's a cobra because I don't, I don't know that many poisonous snakes. I know you think a rattlesnake because that's common in, uh, in California, but even though they're poisonous, it's, it's highly unlikely you'll die from that unless you're really small. I'm not really small, so I'm not afraid of those, right? So he reaches, and then a viper, bam, deadly cobra right black mamba i don't know what, whatever you like bam snatches onto his hand and then how did the people respond to that acts 28 4. the native people it says this when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand they said to one another no doubt this man is a murderer though he has escaped from the sea justice and you'll see in your translation justice is capitalized they're calling on justice. The goddess of justice has not allowed him to live. He must be a murderer, right? Because why? Why would a, a deadly, venomous snake latch onto his hand to kill him after he escaped, right, from a shipwreck? Like, oh, you you escaped the Titanic. Good job. Oh no, you must be a murderer, bro. Because in my closed system, right, like if you're a good person, God rescued you and he keeps you going. But that snake, ba bam, that means you are a killer of men. And so now justice has sent this to kill you. Do you remember what Paul does? He goes, ow! He shakes it off into the fire. And they're like, oh, bow down like this guy must be a god, right? The silliness of it. But we are often that. Even as believers, we see things so black and white. Why is this happening? Why does your child have this issue? Why are you having a, you know, um, this illness or you're having a difficulty getting a job or, or you're struggling with these things? It must be because you have sin. That's the only explanation. As if this world was perfect. Listen, this is not the eternal state. Can we drill that into our souls? This is not the eternal state. So when you get so worked up that our society is going, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, that might be true. That's happened in many societies that Christians have lived and thrived in taking the gospel. This doesn't mean you don't do anything, but I'm just saying you don't put all your eggs in that basket and your hope in fixing that. Or it might be that that you're concerned that the kids that you're raising are going to be raised in a world that's so immoral and stuff, and that's true. But did you expect something different? This is not the kingdom. The kingdom is coming, and the promises of the kingdom coming are one of the things that keeps us going, because as bad as this gets, it's the worst that we will experience in all of eternity, and we live on that hope. We thrive on the promise of what's to come. And we endure. Not because this needs to get fixed. Because that is guaranteed. right? That that world to come is guaranteed and the kingdom is real. So here is Eliphaz reminding Job, hey listen, you, you need to be more consistent. He demonstrates an impatience and a rigidity. Right, he is saying there is something that you are not doing. There's something that 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 you are doing wrongly. He says, think about it. Right, bad things don't happen to good people. It's, it's bad things happen because they've done something bad. And you notice, you notice that 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 sowing and reaping metaphor in verse eight. As I've seen, those who plow inequity and sow trouble reap the same. That is a good statement and one that I think that, that Scripture agrees with on the whole. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. That's a true and proverbially um, accurate statement. Proverbs 22, 8 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. But the thing we might f- fail to recognize is while those statements are proverbially true, there is consequence for sin. It's not always in this life. Right, isn't that Psalm 72, 72, 73? Psalm Asaph, when he says, hey, look at at all the wicked, right? The God-haters that say, hey, God doesn't really know what's going on. Their eyes are bulging with fatness. And in that day, that was a very good thing. Today we might be like, "Dang, they are cursed of God." No, they're like eating all they want. They're getting large and in charge because they are living the good life. And he says they go down to the grave in comfort. Everything is okay and excellent. And he's saying that's he is saying what we would feel. That's not fair, Lord. Like they are wicked. And they're enjoying themselves until they go into a restful sleep and go off to the next world until he goes, Asaph goes, into the house of the Lord and he recalls their end. And he remembers that this isn't the only life that they have. There's eternity to be paid, right? There's a judgment to be paid on the other side of this moral life, mortal life. The wicked will reap. What they sow. And it's absolutely true. This is a Psalm 1 principle. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, right? That the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, if you forget that slight detail, that the judgment of all things comes at the end, I think you, you make this close system into something that you demand. Lord, I've been good to you. I expect some good coming back here. But this is not the kingdom. This is not the end. This is not post-judgment. All Right. That person has done some wicked things, and I expect some, some, some wicked judgment to come upon him. But this is not the end, not yet. And there is not a person that gets away with their sin. Either you will pay for every sin, every thought, every deed, every word misspoken for all of eternity, or Christ will pay for the full penalty of your sin. That, that's the only two options. It's not about the here and now. It's about what is to come. And so as he, as he states, and I'll just say this real quickly, he talks about how the breath of God uh, will cause these wicked to perish. The blast of his anger is literally the blast of his nostrils, which I love. Right? It's just like he goes... <clears throat> snot shot boom right and then they're, they're just wiped out and he talks about that which might be a feared predatory animal and he, and he imagines it in the in, i think in the way of kind of illustrating like like wickedness lions roaring seeking to devour right the roar of the lion the voice of the fierce lion the teeth of the young lions all of it broken voices roars teeth And the strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And he's saying all this stuff happens, but he implies that it should be happening in this lifetime. So he's saying, Job, he's essentially saying, could you stop whining and get back to fearing God and walking in integrity so that you be consistent with what we know? That if you start acting good, God's going to give you good. So let's get back on track. It's probably a little early or something like that. And it's probably a little bit overly simplistic. But let's take a look at the next one. So be consistent, then be realistic. I am going way too slow, huh? Right, be realistic. Let's be realistic about going too slow. All right. Chapter 4, verses 12 through chapter 5, verse 7. And if you see the top of that, I think the way that I might critique His argument here is that it's about his convictions misapplied. You're going to see him um, kind of spill out a bunch of theology that's absolutely good. But it's probably not helpful for Job in this particular moment. He begins um, in point A with this mysterious revelation. Right? Um, Let me get the A there for you. Mysterious revelation, verses 12 through 16. It's he tells his story like it's like really spooky, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting. So I think of like Eliphaz is kind of this this older kind of you know I don't know that that one uncle that likes to tell you all these stories, and you kind of half suspect that most of his stories a little bit, you know what I mean? A um, little little too much, right? It, it doesn't seem like it's he's exagger, he's exaggerating a lot. It seems like that that's that's Eliphaz because this is what he says in verse twelve. He says. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, right? Now listen, he says, my ear received the whisper of it, right? Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. See, so he's saying something eerie happened to him, right? Where, you know, this thought kind of snuck in right, this whisper started happening, and he was in a deep sleep, he uses terminology that reminds us of the deep sleep of Abraham in, 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 the, in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, right, in the cutting of the covenant, that this deep sleep fell on Abraham, and then Abraham felt like kind of this trembling terror, and he woke up to see that God, right, right like a lantern, was walking between the pieces of the, the animals, the carcasses, the sacrifice, to cut this covenant with Abraham, and he's saying he experienced something similar to that this dread came upon me and then verse 15 a spirit glided past my face and the hair of my flesh stood up the hair of my flesh would stand up too if a spirit so the term for spirit though is the word ruach it can mean a spirit meaning you know a soul um, a disembodied spirit but it can also mean breath it can also mean wind so, so he might be describing, and it might be all of one, but he might be describing that his experience in this, in this dream state, this terrifying dream state, was that something like a wind kind of kind of drew past him. And it made his hair stand up. And then, verse 16, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. So so these amazingly supernatural, eerie things took place. He's placing in an incredible amount of the validity of what he is about to say in his personal experience. Do you see that? It was this mysterious revelation. And in the the beauty of that. The brilliance of that argument, you can't really argue with experience, right? You can't say, no, you didn't feel that. Dude, I just told you I felt that, right? Are you me? Were you there? Ryan right? is like, okay, no, I'm not you. You weren't there. I'm just saying you probably didn't. Dude, you weren't there. You're not me. Have you lived my life? Then you need to shut that down because your mouth is running, Right? You don't know what you're talking, right? It's impossible to speak against something that someone has experientially come to understand. So he gives you this eerie, mysterious revelation. God spoke to me in a way that was kind of, woo, right? And I know this to be true. What is it that he said? Starts in verse 17, right? Oh, I went too far. Starting in verse 17, it's about, Our mortal frailty. Look at verse 17 says. Can more this is so the spirit stops in front of him. He can't make it out. It's kind of this this wind, this haze, right? This breath, this spirit, and then it stops, and he's it's it's it culminates, right? Like you're you're like you're like freaked out, and then this is what the spirit says. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And I'll be honest with you, it's a little anticlimactic right? Because you're like, wait, seriously? Eliphaz. You're saying you had this vision from God, this, this spirit like brushed past you. Your hairs are up. You're all freaked out. You're in terror. He stands before you. You can't even make out his form. And the word that he has for you is human beings are sinners. We all knew that. Like unbelieving human beings recognize that, Right? He says, the the spirit says, can a mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? No. I guess that's the end of the revelation, right? There is some question as to when the speaking of this spirit and this vision ends. And I think it covers from verse 17 all the way to verse 21. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then he says more, even in his servants, God concerning his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. In other words, the Spirit seems to be saying, not just simply that that mortal men are not righteous enough to stand before God, all of Job and his friends would affirm that. In fact, they will affirm that over and over and over again. Can a man be pure before his maker? They will affirm, no, we are all sinners, we are all depraved, they all accept that in terms of their theological foundation. But the Spirit continues and says, God doesn't even put trust in his angelic beings. He can't, he he doesn't charge, he charges them with potential error. How much more so then, how much more, verse 19, those who dwell in houses of clay. He's saying mortals who are fragile. We make houses out of wood and steel and all kinds of cement kind of stuff, strong stuff. Nobody makes a house out of clay. Why? Because it's like, hey, don't slam the door. Bam, I told you not to slam the door. Crack, the whole house falls down, right? It's just made of clay. It's fragile. Whose foundation is in the dust, the second part of verse 19, who are crushed like the moth. And this is an interesting illustration, right? And I think the idea is the moth or anything else that you could think of that kind of comes in the night that's just kind of there, you could just, just crush like a moth. Do you know how many moths you've killed in your lifetime? See, I, I don't know how many moths I've killed in my lifetime. I think it's a bunch. Because I'll be honest, it doesn't bother me. I, some of you guys, I know it bothers, right? Like you see a moth, you're like, ah, that's yeah, a moth, you know, ooh, 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 right? Me, I'm like, is that a moth? Bam. Oh, I got that powdery stuff on me again, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right? But right, like it's not that big of a deal. It's just a moth. I don't keep track of it. I don't, I don't send a notice to his family and say, hey, um, moth mom and dad, I'm really sorry. This guy got me in the way, right? Like, it, it is inconsequential. And that's why those who are crushed like a, this is what he's trying to build. He's saying our mortal frailty built into our sinfulness means that God, who is so above us, he, if he allows it, he would crush the wicked like moths. They mean nothing. We mean nothing to him in comparison to him. Verse twenty. Verse 20, between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. Talking about these moths. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Verse 21, similar illustration. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Did they not die? And that without wisdom. He's saying, how fragile is humanity? It's almost like you just pull that one tent peg and the whole thing collapses, right? You think that is accurate to us, Right? I mean, it's just one, we are just one accident. One sickness. One, one in the wrong place at the wrong time moment for my entire existence ending. And in the, in the history of the entire world, nobody will remember who Nam Park is, right? Because it's just, I'm just one mortal individual. I'm a grain of sand on the beach shore. All of that is true at the same time it's not perfectly accurate because according to jesus god knows every hair on each of our heads right he knows every little thing about us so apparently god is not just this distant maker and then just kind of throws you as many of the grains of the sand onto the beach he knows every particular detail of the way that he's created you and the fact that he knows the numbers on my head is astounding because i'm pretty sure that number changes constantly right hairs fall out my hair's a lot thinner than it was when i was young my hair was thick and full and full of life like my son micah's <laughs> at one time and now it's thinned out soft and gentle like a baby's eventually it probably fades away we are mortal and there's frailty that is all true but that might be misapplied especially when you're talking to a guy that is so fragile having lost everything and having no explanation of why these things have taken place i don't think the thing he needs to know is hey job just so you know just to remind you you used to strengthen other people's hands with this man we're nothing God can crush us right we might just be fate. Like things like this can happen to us. Bad things happen to us all the time. But there might be a reason. I'm just saying. God doesn't just crush people out of nothing. For no reason at all. There might be something that's going on. And so, here's your danger, Job. Oop. There's a danger of becoming a fool. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? to which of the holy ones will you turn this is interesting it's almost like you know job you can you could start calling out you could start praying but who's going to answer to you who's who's going to who's going to respond to you why would he think right that Job would not get a response from the holy ones, meaning from the angelic beings or whoever he would lay up his his prayers to. Why would not heaven respond to Job? He has affirmed that Job is a God-fearing man. He walks in his integrity, or at least he used to, and it's because of what follows after that. Verse 2, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. He doesn't say it outright, not yet. But he's implying that Job is walking the path of a fool. And whatever he thinks in terms of what he is thinking rightly, whatever the way that Job is constructing his worldview and trying to understand why these things have happened in his life, he's saying, Job, no one's going to answer your prayers if you act like a fool, if you talk like you deserve something, if if you respond to the Lord as if you are innocent when you are not verse 3 i have seen the fool taking root but suddenly i cursed his dwelling meaning that i've seen a fool right getting roots starting to prosper and then as i prayed about it god destroyed his dwelling listen to the rest of this his children are far from safety they are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them the hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but a man is born in trouble as the sparks fly upward. I want you to rethink verses 3 to 5. He's saying, listen, I've seen a fool that gets roots and gets wealthy, but then God curses him. I've seen his children, not being safe, being crushed at the gate. No one to deliver. I've seen the hungry come and eat his crops, take his flock. They even take it, even if you put up thorns to his shield, your flock away from those, they still come and take it. I've seen the thirsty come and panting, take his wealth. Think of the insensitivity of talking to Job. About losing your right, losing your posterity, your children, losing your home, losing all your possessions, your wealth, because that's the way, the path of fools. This is literally, this is literally what's happened to Job, and he doesn't say it out loud, but he implies that this is what will happen because. This is the kind of stuff that happens if you are walking like a fool, Job. This is the danger of your potential foolishness. This is the the only explanation I find within my worldview. My closed, under-the-sun kind of box. There's no other way to explain it. You're barely a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know. But you got bad issues, and that's why all this stuff is happening to you. That would be the modern version of... The advice that Eliphaz has for Job. This is his his truth twisting, right? And accusing Job of folly. Now, it is true that Scripture does talk about how God is opposed to the man, the woman, that does not fear him. It is true, but like I said, we always take that in light of eternity i think i think god's perspective uh, is this is not the only life i'm giving you but from our perspective all we can think of is if you do good to good people lord it has to be in this life right if you do bad to bad people it has to be in this life right it sounds awfully like the prosperity gospel i am faithful i am good i follow you so shower those blessings that's what's supposed to happen. That's what I read in the scriptures. God is good to those who are good to him. So let your goodness reign. Let it shower down upon me. Seems to be what he is implying. I'm trying to see if I want to rush through all of the rest of this. Let's just do it. <laughs> We're going to move really quickly. But see, it's him saying in his, his misapplied conviction that only fools fall into this judgment. And implying that this is probably Job. So he's saying, Job, be realistic. Let's really think about this. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? There's an answer. And fools lose children, lose houses, lose wealth and treasure. Right? That's kind of what he's doing. The third is be humble be humble and here we see again that presumption and oversimplification just kind of exported out in terms of his argument starting in verse 8 he starts by saying right essentially he's saying you know what i would do you ever give an advice like that to someone who's really in suffering that is probably one of the most self-centered self-righteous attitudes that you could bring to that discussion right that's not very comforting yeah you know what i would do i would just get remarried joe you know I would have more kids. You know what I'd do? I would invest in Bitcoin, get back into this whole mess, right? You're going to be okay, right? This is what I would do. That, that's what he says in verse 8. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. It implies that Job is not doing that. You're far from God because you've got to be far from God because you've got to be a fool because only a fool loses house, home, treasure, family, everything, right? So you work backwards and he's saying, you know, if I were you, I would, I would seek God and I would commit my way to him. Who does great things un- and unsearchable, right? This is verse 9. Marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted up to safety. He, all of that is absolutely true, Right? That is good theology. He is saying God does great and unsearchable, the thing, marvelous things without number. He's saying he's miraculous, supernatural, and he could call into existence things that don't exist. He gives rain on the earth and sends water to the field. That's the thing. He controls the weather. Of all the things that we could predict, the moon cycles, the, you know, um, our rotation around the sun, we could predict a lot of stuff that God has made. Four seasons in the year, you can't predict day-to-day weather. God does. He's saying he is that sovereign. And so if he is that capable of all things, he can set on high those that are lowly, but they're lowly and repentant. He can, he can cause, you know, to lift up those who mourn back to sin. He can help you. What would I do? I would turn back to God, implying you are not turning back to God. Second, what God will do, verse 12, this is what God will do. If you're trying to be crafty, Job, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as the night, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Again, good statements and more or less true he he is the one right that does these good things that frustrates the crafty in fact even as he says that he frustrates the crafty you know um paul the apostle in 1 corinthians 13:19 he quotes that he says for the wisdom of this world is folly to, with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So if it surprises you that Paul the apostle is quoting Eliphaz, it's because Eliphaz's theology about who God is is not very far off. It's accurate. It's true. God does do that. He, he throws over those that think that they're so clever that they can make their own way. That is our God. This is what God will do. He'll save the needy. From the sword of his the mouth, meaning like accusations that are false. God will rescue those individuals, right? He will He will give His hand to those that have lost hope, to the poor, to the unjust, to, to the ones that have suffered injustice, and He will rescue those. That's the kind of God that we worship. That is true. But the presumption and the oversimplification of this is that Job, you're on the wrong side of this. Clearly, otherwise these things wouldn't have happened to you. He's absolutely mistaken. There is a subtle self-righteousness that seeps into our arguments when we start to say, you know, you should do this. You should. You know what I would do? You know what I would do? It's as if he's thinking like Job is going through something that everyone goes through. Doesn't everybody lose all their kids all at one day, all their prosperity, their health? Doesn't everyone go through that? Everyone goes through that sometimes, Job. Get yourself right with God. There's a presumption and over in and all that. And this last one. Right? What is happening right now? Okay, there you go. We'll look at this last one just all at once. There's a shallowness and insensitivity when he says, be submissive. He says, verse 17, embrace your discipline. He says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds. But he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and in seven no evil shall touch you. That's that formula of one number plus one that says that, that all of it, all troubles, all evils, he will deliver and keep you from. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. The destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. He's saying God disciplines those whom he loves. That's from Hebrews. That's direct. That's true. But it's an oversimplification. There's a shallowness to say, Job, this is God's discipline on you. Just embrace it. Just take it. Accept it. Submit to it. And everything will be okay. They interpret everything will be okay as in all the stuff that you lost will be restored. But you don't restore children, right? You don't just restore human beings and the loss and the tragedy that he has suffered. There's a shallowness and insensitivity to things that they say. Look at verse 23, right? Know your blessing, 23 to 27. For you shall be in league. This is what happened if you embrace your, your discipline. You shall be in league with the stones of the field, meaning the stones will make a, cut a covenant with you and they'll let stuff grow. The beasts of the field will be at peace with you. They're not going to come and eat your stuff. They're going to stay away. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You hear all the good things that come back. You know, your, your fields will be plentiful and protected. Your tent, your, your dwelling will be at peace. Right? Your fold, meaning where you keep all your livestock, will be full again. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many. You're going to have lots of kids, your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age. Your health is restored and you're feeling good right up to the end like a sheaf gathered up in its season. He says verse 27, Behold this we, and he used the first person plural suggesting that it's all of them that agree to this. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear, know. Hear and know it for your good. You see how shallow and insensitive that is? Job, you can have all that back. The irony is that Eliphaz is encouraging Job to do the very thing that Satan accused him of being. Of course he worships you. You give him a lot of stuff. Eliphaz is saying, hey, go worship him. So he'll give you a lot of stuff. Is his theological statements accurate? at a time? Absolutely. He's misapplying this in a way that is presumptuous, self-focused, overly simplified, and he's suggesting to Job, hey, man, if you just kind of fix yourself, whatever this issue is, God's going to bless you again. You get all that junk back. And junk is the right term for it because in his mind... Yeah, your wife went back home. Kids are all lost. But you can get more kids. You can get more stuff. We just move on. The outrageous oversimplification of the self-righteous argument of Eliphaz. And Eliphaz is the kind one. He is the gentle one. And we'll see it will get progressively worse. The one thing I want to close on, and I apologize that we went really late, but the one thing I want to close on is this. At the heart of what Eliphaz seems to be saying and what his friends will will attempt um, to establish is that in this closed system, right, you do good, God blesses. You do bad, God curses. And his argument was, is there such thing as an innocent person, as a righteous person, suffering? Does God allow or curse him who is perfectly righteous? And his assumption is, is that this is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. But we ourselves know that's not true. Because as difficult as the suffering experience of righteous Job, the Son of Man came to redeem us from our sins. No sin, innocent, and perfectly righteous to a level that Job cannot in himself accomplish. And yet, he received the full penalty of the wrath of God on himself for sinners like you and I. So whatever else we might say about this construct that the innocent never suffer, he is right about so many things Eliphaz is, but on that point he is absolutely wrong. If God is a God of grace, he has sent his only son to pay the penalty of our sins when he had no sins so that we might be delivered, that we might be rescued, so that we might come to know salvation through him and look towards eternal life when all things are made new. We live for that day. We struggle with this day, but we struggle by faith in what God has accomplished through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We went long, but we thank you. As we look through the arguments that are made, things that are said that are accurate and true but maybe misapplied. Give us wisdom, Lord, because, Lord, we find ourselves constantly catching ourselves, have given, having given bad counsel regularly, thinking that because in our own, in our own presumption, we know better, we, we understand God, and we can put him in this little box. Lord, we do not know why difficulties and struggles come but we know that your hand of faithfulness is real and even as we read this morning before we began our service lord your faithfulness your steadfast love is everlasting we see it in the gift of jesus christ and we ask that we'll bow in submission to you and to his lordship and salvation for us in jesus name we pray amen